Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, everyone. It's Pacific, and this is Out of Place. This week, we got a fun episode for you. It features Mark Witten who you may know from other podcasts like The Hotel and The Theater of Tomorrow. And, of course, our show is edited and composed by Daisy McNamara and Dana Creaseman, who are from the show Meddling with Monsters, a wonderful and incredible tabletop RPG that I highly recommend you check out. But that's all i got to say this week. Enjoy The End of the World. This job still has the capacity to surprise me. Do you think by now I could cope with whatever the extant field team brings back? I've seen evidence of whole worlds dead. Fire raining from the sky. Disease or war wiping out the entire human race. I won't say I've got used to it, but it doesn't shock me anymore. People die, things break or decay. Extant is just about those same universal principles on a global scale. It's not easy, but it can be forced into the framework of what a human mind can understand. What they brought back this time, though, isn't going to be easy to make fit. Things have been going okay, which probably should have been a warning. I've been talking to Rico again. We play table football over lunch. He was telling me a story about his family. He has about a hundred siblings and cousins back in California, every one of which seems to have got into some scrape or other. This one was called Angela Maria, and she got arrested for stealing hundreds of traffic cones so she could arrange them in the shape of a penis that would show up on Google Earth. She's a nurse now. Anyway, I had an unguarded moment and mentioned how I'm sort of on the outside here, and he said I should join him for a beer after work at a truck stop a couple of miles down the freeway where he and some of the facilities guys hang out. 
We spent a couple of hours there while I watched them drink weak American beer and play pinball. It was fun. Facilities guys know even less about the project's work than I do, so they just treat it like any other wage slave gig. No existential terror. No speculating on what the project board really wants or who they are. Just bitching about the other departments and lobbying for what goes on the jukebox next. It was a late night by my standards. I just managed to drag myself through the dorm shower and make it into the office on time for the latest lot of mission data to come through. I could have done with a decent night's sleep before this one. The target timeline was strange. The orbital probes had sent back a lot of blurry shots of anomalous structures in high Earth orbit, which was a new one on me. They were huge, like black lattices hundreds of miles across, positioned in geostationary orbits over the poles and at regular intervals around the globe, 18 of them in all. The probes couldn't make out much detail, but the tech guy's best guess was they were for monitoring the surface. Making them and getting them up there was well beyond the means of our timeline's level of industrialization and technology. The Earth was dark. The streetlights in the cities were turned off and there was no air or sea traffic. No TV or telecoms. The probes could only detect one signal. A repeating blip from somewhere on the border between Germany and Switzerland. Apart from disturbed areas near many large cities, perhaps large-scaled engineering projects that were abandoned, there were no signs of what had happened to everyone. The rest of the world was healthy. Forests, oceans, jungles. It was only the places where people should have been that were dead. The team was sent through a dimensional breach, with their target the source of the lone human-generated signal. At this time, the capsule was close to its target, hitting less than 50 metres from a point selected in the countryside south of Ravensburg, Germany. The team found themselves in an overgrown field of hops, which are farmed prominently in the region. Private Quintero remarked that at least this time the weather was decent and the area was idyllic, on the surface at least. The team secured their immediate area, including the nearby farmhouse. The house was unoccupied but showed signs of a disturbance, so the team checked it before moving on. The house had evidently been abandoned for some time, with dirt and leaves having blown in through the broken windows. In the kitchen, utensils were scattered across the floor and there were dried bloodstains on the frame of the door. They found a body in the adjoining living room, lying beside a mouldering sofa. The body was mostly skeletonized and going by the clothes was a woman. There was a kitchen knife by its hand. Upstairs, the bedroom had been ransacked and the badly burned bedclothes were strewn on the floor. Wrapped up in the sheets was a second corpse, also burned. The bottles and cans of fuel and household chemicals that could be used as accelerants suggested the fire was deliberately started. The last room they checked had a barricaded door. Private Sandwich shut it open to reveal a second bedroom with the furniture piled up in front of the door. Tied to a radiator was a third corpse in a mummified state. Ropes bound its hands and feet to the radiator and old bloodstains were spattered on the walls and floor around it. The floorboards and plaster of the wall were covered in deep, bloody scratch marks. Sergeant Brandt ordered the team to move on before they got distracted by the state of the house. It was the whole world that he argued they were interested in, and not a single family of German farmers, whatever might have happened to them. They continued southwest towards the signal source. The sun went down and the team were able to see the orbital lattice far to the south, reflecting the moonlight. They passed graffiti on a building reading, 
Kempfer. Fight. This would not be unusual, except it was echoed across many other structures and road signs. A flag depicting a world map on a red field was also hanging from several lampposts and from the windows of houses, and had evidently been torn down from several others, leaving tatters of red fabric. The team reached a small farming community which was in a similar state of abandonment and partial disrepair. On the edge of the town was an area of disturbed earth, too irregular to be a ploughed field and without any partially built structures to suggest it was a building site. The area was estimated to be a couple of kilometres square and its only feature was a structure of scrap wood arranged in a rough tripod, hung with what appeared to be human remains. The team got closer and realised the remains were not human. The body was that of an arthropod about three metres tall, whose segmented limbs were curled up inside a large curved shell on what the team assumed to be its back. Four long upper limbs hung free from the shell and each ended in four segmented fingers. A cluster of tissue at the centre of the inner legs was covered in small round black protrusions they took to be eyes, along with gill-like openings. The creature's shell was ruptured and pinkish internal matter could be seen dried out and decayed. It had been nailed to the wooden tripod through its longer limbs and the upper edge of its shell. As Poulter photographed this body... Private Quintero noticed bones sticking up through the broken ground. He kicked some of the earth aside and uncovered the rest of a human body, which was in a state of decomposition aside from the fully skeletonized parts above the surface. Quintero and Sandich used entrenching tools to dig around the area and discovered signs of several more bodies just below the surface. They did not have the means to estimate the causes of death or other specifics such as age or gender, but they observed the bodies had been buried in civilian clothes. The team had found a mass grave, watched over by the corpse of something that was not human and had evidently died violently. The area taken up by the disturbed ground was sufficient to serve as a burial pit for thousands of bodies. If this mass grave was analogous to the far larger areas of disturbed ground outside population centres, it would explain where most of the people had gone. They had been buried, in haste and in their millions. Brandt ordered the team to move on and they quickly came within sight of the signal source. It was a group of single-storey prefabricated structures covered by an enormous camouflage net of the kind intended to prevent detection from the air. The team approached with weapons ready in anticipation of encountering living inhabitants. They were especially nervous given the non-human corpse encountered earlier. They broke down a door to gain entry and found themselves in a combination of offices and laboratories linked by clear plastic tunnels. There were a few signs of disturbance, especially in one prefabricated hut which had been used as a dormitory. Bunks were overturned and there were possible bloodstains on the walls and floor. The laboratories had radio and other communications equipment and reams of printouts. Warrant Officer Poulter ascertained they were for monitoring communications and filtering the results, then analysing the information gained. He collected much of the material for later analysis, but could not work out what the site was looking for at first glance. The signal came from one of the labs, boosted through an antenna on the roof. It was generated by a transmitter powered by a solar battery, explaining how it continued to transmit without a working power grid or anyone to maintain it. The computer linked to the transmitter had a separate hard drive, 
which was labelled with Ven es Anget, stenciled on its casing. This translates as to whom it may concern. Poulter unplugged the hard drive and took it with him. Whiteboards in one lab were covered in calculations and diagrams describing the locations of the lattice structures in orbit and the areas of the Earth's surface they were able to monitor. The mission area at the border between Switzerland and Germany was labelled as one of the areas least visible to the lattices. This confirmed the orbital structures were used for monitoring the surface and explained why the laboratory was camouflaged. It was meant to avoid notice from orbit. In an area of open ground between the buildings... The team found the bodies. Unlike others found, they were in the open. And most showed no signs of violence. They wore civilian clothes and had died, sitting in a circle, facing each other. Several syringes and pharmaceutical containers lay by the bodies. Two other corpses were laid out beside the circle, these ones having evidently died from stabbing and beating. The bodies were all in a similar state of decomposition. Again, Poulter took some photographs. Quintero speculated they had come across a scene of a mass suicide. None of the team contradicted him. Sergeant Brandt ordered the team to begin the return to the capsule. On the way, Porter was able to connect the hard drive to his laptop and found, among large amounts of technical documents and stashes of data without context, a set of audio files titled with dates. September 4th. We welcomed them as friends. <laughs> of course we did. That's what we've been taught to do for generations. And they made the right noises, too, so... A spirit of interstellar cooperation. A sharing of knowledge. A helping hand to join the pantheon of spacefaring species. It was when they failed to deliver that we started to become suspicious. They built their observatories in orbit, but the secrets didn't come. I mean, I'm not sure what we were expecting them to give to us, Quantum computers, maybe. Nanotechnology, some kind of immortality serum. We waited months, then a year, and all they did was build. They didn't tell us how they built it all, either. It just started appearing in the sky. And there were always people who doubted them, but they were the crazies. We called them conspiracy theorists who were jeopardizing the relationship with our benevolent space brothers. Then we started to think, maybe, just maybe, they were right. That's what we're here for. We have a dozen labs across the world. No one person knows where they all are. We've done everything we can to make them as low-profile as possible because we know they must be watching from orbit for any sign we're suspicious of them. This lab works with communications. They must be contacting each other somehow, and we're going to find out how. <laughs> Reminds me of the Bletchley Park cryptographers trying to break the Enigma code, but this time the code is in a language that's not even human. We start today. October 29th. Breakthrough. Not a huge one, but enough to give us hope. We've isolated the wavelengths they're using. Turns out it wasn't radio or electromagnetism, or even pheromones like Zubkov thought. It's just light. They use extremely powerful magnetic lenses to pick up pulses of light invisible to our eyes. Now we just need to work out what the hell they're saying to each other. 
I hear another lab is working on their actual language. Hope someone can put us together once we have our half of the puzzle. There's a disease in Australia. Not our problem, of course. They're on the other side of the world, but it's some awful brain rotting thing. The continent is quarantined. Relatively easy to close the ports and air routes. I try to tune out the conspiracy theorists, but I have to admit, if I wanted to test out my alien virus super weapon, Australia is where I'd do it. November 5th. We're building a map of the communications density between the orbital platforms, similar to the idea of chatter in the intelligence community. Even if we don't know what's being said, the amount of it tells its own story. The platform over Australasia is communicating constantly with the one over the South Pole. Our theory is the polar platform is in command. It's receiving information and giving out orders. Another delegation of them came down to Earth. Our ambassadors asked them again what their plans are for humanity. The reply was the same. They live on a different time scale, so while by their standards they are working as fast as they can, by human standards, we will have to be very patient. It seems they're working quickly enough to watch what's happening in Australia. December 29th. We linked a spike in communications density with the cure being found for the Australasian necrophage. There's no doubt anymore. They're watching. There are two more potentials we've identified. One is the unrest in the Philippines, and the other is that war that's sucking in most of Central America. Each development is marked by a comm spike. South Pole is coordinating them. They're getting bolder. They're interfering more. We have about a thousand ideas about what they're trying to do. None of them fill me with anything but fear. February 3rd. The biggest spike yet. When the Central American and Southeast Asian situations calmed down, we thought they had stopped. They're more active than ever. It started 72 hours ago. It coincided with the explosion in North Africa. The story is it was a chemical plant. Thousands of miles are contaminated. Millions of people are getting sick. Was that them? Did they set it off? Why? February 9th. I haven't slept for three days straight. Nobody has. People are starting to lose it. The comms are going, you're going crazy overhead. The South Pole is sending out orders every few seconds. <sighs> Don't know how long I can function. Heard shouting and gunfire from outside. Rollins went out and says the locals lynched one of them. Now people are just wandering around yelling and attacking each other. They're sending squads down from orbit to... I don't know what they're trying to do. None of us are thinking straight, so... I may be way off, but I think something's gone wrong. They were doing something and it went out of control. They're trying to fix it. But they can't. They can't fix it. February 12th. It stops you from sleeping. 
they can't turn it off. Everyone's trying to bury their bodies, but we can't keep up. T turns out if you can't sleep, you, you go crazy. We'll mark these entries, set up a transmitter with the solar cells. Maybe someone will survive to find it. February 14th. Decided to go before we lose it completely. Marsh and Wallingham already have. We have enough sedatives for everyone. It'll kill us. But we'll sleep first. Goodbye. It was aliens. No one dared say it out loud, but I suppose I have to. Bug people from outer space. Logically, of course, it was only a matter of time before Extant encountered them. If there are infinite timelines, there must be an incountably high number where aliens have interacted with humanity. That's the logical part of my brain. The other part says, Jesus Christ, aliens? These ones weren't friendly, but I don't think they were hostile, either. When I think about their observational platforms in the sky, about the weird changes they made to Earth and the way they suddenly stopped, I think of the tech guys injecting rats and monkeys with viruses from other timelines. I think about the way they observe and document and send everything back up to their supervisor. I imagine what an alien race might actually want with Earth. If we are so backwards compared to them, why would they bother landing here at all? Sure, they might just want to bring a new species into the next technological age out of the goodness of their hearts, but what if they're like us? Colonists, who dress up their self-interest in the language of civilization and progress. I think the aliens came to Earth to experiment on us. They had a whole planet full of sentient creatures still at a stage where they couldn't leave the planet, so whatever the alien scientists did would be contained on that one world. They could do whatever they wanted to us, knowing that however bad it got, it couldn't escape to another planet. So they tested us with diseases and mental control to see what would happen, while stringing us along with promises of technology and enlightenment from a superior race, propaganda to keep the natives docile, morsels to keep the lab rats happy. It could be they wanted to learn the limits of human physiology, but I suspect that wouldn't have been enough practical benefit to be worth the hassle. I think they were testing weapons. Whatever the aliens wanted to learn, their experiment into the effect of widespread sleep deprivation went wrong. If it was a disease, it spread faster and further than they intended. However it was achieved, it infected the whole world. They panicked and tried to stop it, but it was too late. If a person goes without sleep for too long, their cognitive faculties decay. They stop making good decisions. They hallucinate or suffer psychosis. Going by the results of the aliens' experiments, they can turn 
violently insane. The scientists who saw it for what it was chose to die a relatively painless death, instead of waiting to tear each other apart. That world wasn't just devoid of humans. It was devoid of aliens, too. At least living ones. When they ruined their colony of lab rats, they just left it to rot. Maybe whoever was responsible for the screw-up was punished, but if they're anything like us, they swept it under the carpet as best they could and moved on. I'm not sure what recommendation I can make to Director Beckman about this one. Don't trust aliens seems the main bullet point, but I imagine the project board can work that out for themselves. Perhaps we should be prepared for the sheer enormity of what we might one day encounter. Aliens being real, even in a different dimension, has thrown me completely. The whole world seems different. Less relevant, somehow. As if no matter what I do, I'll never matter. Our human brains might not be so great at functioning without sleep, but we're very good at experiencing something astonishing and then just getting on with things. We mould ourselves around that new impossible reality, accept it and focus again on our immediate concerns. It's how we get through wars and tragedies. It's not perfect. It breaks us to a greater or lesser degree. But it keeps us going. Just like I'll keep filing this mission summary... Brush my teeth, go to bed, get up and start it all again, all while knowing that reality is fundamentally different to what I always believed until earlier today. Thank God for normality. The buzz of the fluorescent lights, Natalie from accounts and her braying laugh, the New Mexico sunset, the aircon being on the blink again. If there's anything that will keep me sane, it's the banality of it all. Like a bland beige blanket over all the crazy. I just hope, when I've seen all the extant team has to bring back from other worlds, I'll be boring enough to survive. Out of Place was written and created by Ben Counter. Sound design and music was done by Dana Creesman. Our editor is Daisy McNamara. And I'm your producer, Pacific S. Obadiah. Andrew was Ben Counter. Xenoscientist was Mark Witten. And this is a Midnight Disease production. For more information, visit midnightdisease.net.